Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. Rayleigh and I started this podcast with the aim to provide easy to understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility and all aspects of women's health. And today... As it is the start of Women's Health Week, we introduce you to Dr. Zippy Ben-Harim, the lead gynaecologist at Women's Health Melbourne. And with Zippy, we cover a condition that is rarely discussed, prolapse. We love reading our listener reviews and work hard to take feedback on board. If you enjoy listening to Knocked Up and find our resource useful, please take a moment to leave a review. This really helps others to find us. Sippy, will we start off by introducing you to our listeners? My name is Sippy uh, Benarim. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, moved from Israel in uh, 2011 after meeting a very well-known uh, urogynecologist from uh, Melbourne, Dr. Marcus Carey. He offered me a job at the Women's uh, for two years to do urogynecology. I learned urogynecology, fell in love with Australia and um, decided to stay. So my initial plan was a two-year trip to Australia. I have been working in uh, both obstetrics and uh, gynecology since then, working in private and public and providing uh, women with uh, gynae services, general gynae and urogynae as well. I'm working both in the city and uh, in regional uh, Victoria as part of providing uh, services to women in regional Victoria. A couple of years ago, as in many things in life, it's just being in the right place at the right time. And Annette Tis introduced me to Relia to assist her once a month in theatre. Obviously, it's good fun and great to operate with Relia and assist Relia. And that uh, gave me open another door, which was an opportunity to do to see patients to do gynecological work at uh, Women's Health Melbourne, which is a great place. And it gives me lots of satisfaction with the work I provide. Relia has a great team and I feel welcomed and well-supported and look forward to looking after women. And Sippy has taken over as the lead gynaecologist at Women's Health Melbourne and we're very excited to have her at our team as a very much valued and much loved team member. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about prolapse and 
before that, Zippy, maybe tell us a little bit about you. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist who does uh, general work. My first job in Australia was a two-year job at the women's doing uh, urogyne. So this is where I gained further experience in uh, prolapse and urinary incontinence. And I have become a bit passionate about helping women improving the quality of life with managing uh, prolapse and incontinence. I have to tell you, I have no idea what prolapse is. It's a really common problem after childbirth. Right. Yeah. So that's why I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I don't have children. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, okay, you've answered a little bit of a question. Possibly it comes from childbirth. So what, what is prolapse? So prolapse is like a hernia. If we look at the analogy to a surgical problem, people are familiar with a hernia in the belly button or hernia in the groin. If we look at the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor is like a trampoline and we have organs sitting on that and that includes the uterus, the bladder and the bowel system. There are some risk factors which we can discuss in which this trampoline becomes weaker and does not give good support and then we have organs coming through or descending through the pelvic floor and that can be the bladder, the uh, uterus or the top of the vagina for women who have had a hysterectomy and the bowel. And the symptoms are mainly of pressure and feeling something coming down. We've done a few episodes on pelvic floor before, so I can see how in particular that would relate to people who have a weaker pelvic floor after giving birth. Mm. Also with aging, your pelvic floor weakens anyway. So even if you haven't given birth, is is this is there a risk of prolapse? Of course. So the made as Relia said, the major risk factor for prolapse is uh, pregnancy and childbirth. So it's not just the birth itself, but it's also the pregnancy. Pregnancy puts pressure on the pelvic floor and makes it weaker. And childbirth or vaginal birth is another major risk factor. The major damage happens when we have the first couple of kids. Um, so the first baby increases the risk fourfold and the second baby eightfold, and then it kind of plateaus. So at times I have women who have had two vaginal births asking uh, how to have the third one as they feel that uh, the pelvic floor is, is not as good as it was. Well, the major damage has already happened. So that's, that's the, the major uh, risk factor. Another risk factor is aging. As we get older, prolapse becomes more common, and majority of patients having prolapse repair or prolapse issues would be in the 60s and 70s. With our population aging, this is becoming a common problem. Other risk factors which are worth mentioning are overweight uh, and being obese. That increases the risk of prolapse and increases the risk of recurrence of prolapse after having a prolapse repair. We obviously encourage people to aim for normal weight. Women who already have prolapse, there is no good evidence to show that losing weight will regress the prolapse. There are some unusual risk factors so that uh, women with weak connective tissue, but that would be the minority, and they have uh, weaker pelvic floor muscles and connective tissue, and they are at risk 
having prolapse. So Sippy, one thing I see in my practice and is seen across the board these days is that women are having babies a bit later in our lives at a time where our tissues are also experiencing some aging changes and some weakness compared to our teenage years, early 20s, when kind of biology without in a world without contraception intended us to have our first children. Are you seeing this affecting the numbers of women who are suffering prolapse after childbirth? So my personal observation is that having babies when we're a bit older, uh, we're more likely to have more complicated births. So cesarean rate go up, the risk of tears and bad tears go up. So overall, it will have an impact on the risk of prolapse and incontinence. We don't have data at this stage to reflect the change in the age of having first baby. It's been changing gradually, hasn't it? And mm, so it's, mm. um, it, it keeps going up and up and up, doesn't it? Like the most recent birth report from Victoria showed the age at first baby for the average woman for the first time was over 32. And um, and that's that's the first time that it's been that high. And you've got to remember that when we see the average, which is kind of like the mean, we have to assume that at least 50% of women are having babies for the first time after that age. Yeah. So it's really yeah. shifting, really shifting. And looking back, reflecting to the time where just the generation before were having babies, the average age of first birth was in the early 20s. Yeah, so to see the consequences of that, it will be in the next 20 years or so because that's a gradual shift and prolapse usually doesn't happen straight after birth. It takes a bit of time. Yeah, that that's a really good point. So the, the prolapse symptoms that women feel, I guess the age of when a surgical remedy is applied is really when those symptoms are getting to the point where they're really affecting a woman's quality of life. And even once they're affecting a woman's quality of life, it can take a long time because surgical can feel to a lot of people like quite a radical thing to do. It can take quite a lot of time before a woman accepts that surgery might be the right way forward for her. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those early symptoms of prolapse that women might feel but might not act on and maybe what they can do about them to try and stop them getting worse earlier on in their life? Early symptoms include weakness in the sense that feeling of pressure, feeling that something is coming down, especially when exercising, when lifting, symptoms of licking urine when jumping on a trampoline or when running uh, fast or running long distances. That would be the mild symptoms. Over time, it, it declares itself. It becomes more obvious. In the early stages, there, there will be mild symptoms that are more present with strenuous exercise, heavy lifting, or when they get like a massive cold and they cough all the time. The thing that I can do initially would be pelvic floor exercises. We tend to not persevere with the pelvic floor exercises. So initially we have some motivation, then we get a bit better and we stop doing them. And like any other exercise, it's if we don't do it, it doesn't work. 
Um, we need to persevere with the exercises for them to work. My uh, advice for women is keep doing those exercises. Use an app, put yourself a reminder and try doing them. And that in the long run will be a benefit. So ladies, train your pelvic floor. <laughs> so Sippy, Sippy is somebody who's committed to exercise. She's a, a runner, aren't she, Sippy? I run. I wouldn't say I'm a runner, but I do run. So look, that's something that I think, you know, is, you know, from, from a perspective of women, like it's a big quality of life issue to be able to exercise, to be able to run, to be able to, especially early after you've given birth and have, you know, even a few years later, you've got little kids, you're running after your children. Women do accept, I think, more than they should, those symptoms of leaking and, you know, kind of leaking a bit of urine as, oh, I've just had a baby. Do you think women should accept those symptoms or is it not normal to leak? That's a tricky one. It's not normal to leak. By definition, we have uh, muscles around the water pipe and we're not meant to leak. So by definition, I would say it's not normal to leak. How we perceive it and what we do with that, that's a, a personal choice. Some women will say, well, I leak a couple of drops when I run a marathon. To me, that's not bad enough to justify anything doing. Obviously, with severe urinary incontinence or with severe prolapse, majority of women will seek help. With mild symptoms, that would be balancing lifestyle. So women that have a more sedentary lifestyle will not see that as much of a problem. And women that are very fit, uh, doing workouts at the gym, running long distances, will struggle even with mild urinary incontinence. So severe symptoms, majority of patients will seek help. And mild symptoms, it's a personal choice that takes into consideration lifestyle and preferences. So prolapse is such a varied experience in that, you know, some people have prolapse just of the bladder and some people have prolapse just of the bowel and some people have prolapse of the cervix so that the cervix comes down and they feel like a lump in the lower vagina and others will have uh, and this is pretty extreme, but, you know, complete prosodentia where the whole uterus can actually prolapse out the vagina. So how does somebody go from that mild prolapse to complete prosodentia? I guess when, when someone presents and the whole uterus is coming out of the vagina, and this often happens actually, I would say, I don't know if this is also your experience, Hippie, but... Um, you see the older patient who presents in this context where things have just been getting worse and worse and worse over years and years and years and nobody's done anything about it or offered any any assistance. Can you tell us about what do you think are the reasons that women don't seek help with prolapse? Things we discuss very openly and there are things which we don't. Prolapse and urinary incontinence would be one of those topics with, that we don't have a chat or like we don't talk about it with friends. And that goes to many other topics that we don't just, you know, miscarriages. There are other, there are other things that, um, that we just don't talk about. 
Um, so I think raising the awareness in the public would serve the public very well in the sense that everyone will be aware that this is not normal to have something coming out. This is not normal to have urinary incontinence. So I think the first problem is our lack of awareness um, that this is not normal and this, this needs to be addressed. And obviously, older women would be more private about those things. Usually, if it's a very advanced prolapse, like with a late presentation, it would be that I would see women in the 70s or 80s, women that have been putting up with that for a long, long time. And basically, they come and see me when they just can't cope anymore. So... They, um, because of this severe prolapse, they can't empty the bladder or they can't empty the bowel. It's not just the discomfort of, of having the prolapse, but it has other consequences that interfere with these basic things. Sipi, you mentioned that cesarean does somewhat protect against prolapse, that vaginal birth is, is one of the major risk factors, although pregnancy does contribute in its own right, whether you have a cesarean or whether you have a vaginal birth. I've heard in the discussions around the College of ONG and the midwifery bodies in the last couple of years, the question of should women have to sign consent forms for vaginal birth? Like This is quite controversial because Giving birth vaginally is somewhat what nature intended in many ways. It's the way we've physiologically developed to give birth. And outside of the last couple of centuries, there's been no option for cesarean. And even for the many years when cesarean was first invented, it was an operation that the mother uniformly did not survive and you know, was done for the benefit of the baby. And only in modern days, really, in the last... 30 years or 40 years, has cesarean become relatively a lot safer? What What is your opinion on, firstly, the idea of a woman being educated and giving informed consent to give birth vaginally? Uh, and then I'll ask you about, well, what are the relative merits of cesarean delivery in terms of prolapse prevention compared to vaginal delivery? All right, that's that's quite a large topic. So I'll start with something which I really liked and I heard many, many years ago, that the fact that something is natural, it doesn't mean it's healthy or it's good for you. There are so many things that are natural, but they're terrible. That's not to reflect on, that's not, yeah, that's um, sugar, that's um, some drugs that are very natural. So the fact that something is natural doesn't mean it's safe. I am all for vaginal birth. And that's not to say that vaginal birth is not uh, the way nature had planned for us. Definitely, that's the way nature had planned for us. But nowadays, we know about the risks and the benefits, and I think we need to have a discussion. Over the last uh, couple of years, a well-known urogynecologist from Sydney, Peter Dietz, has been promoting consent for vaginal birth which would be the other extreme. I don't know if, we, if we're at the point that we need to do consent for vaginal birth, but definitely when planning a birth, we need to discuss the risks and the benefits 
and make a, an informed decision about the right way of having a baby. There is a big difference between someone that has a small baby, she's normal size, has no risk factors and progresses nicely in labor to uh, someone who is 40 and has had long-standing infertilities, having her first baby, has diabetes. Baby's estimated weight towards the end is, you know, 4.2, 4.3. I'm not saying she can't try for vaginal birth, but she needs to be aware of the risks. And the risks are the immediate risk during labor, early after birth, and the possible long-term consequences. With regards to the second part of your question about the long-term consequences, there is a study that uh, followed women through for um, quite a long time. And this study shows that caesareans do reduce the risk of prolapse in the long term. Sadly, it doesn't reduce as much the risk of urinary incontinence. The other thing that we need to take into consideration is family size. So uh, when we give advice, it's not just one baby. If someone is having their first baby and they're planning to have a very large family, we would encourage them to try and have a vaginal birth because there are some risks associated with multiple caesareans. So it's, it's a complex decision. And do women in the public health system, do you think they have as much autonomy as women in the private health system when it comes to how they give birth? I would hope the answer is yes. I do uh, public obstetrics and to be honest, I have an in-depth discussion about how we're going to have this baby and I would not give different advice in private or in public. Now, I think women, even in the public system, if they don't want to have to try and have a vaginal birth, they will uh, have an elective cesarean section. It might be another few hurdles in the sense that they will be requested to see two consultants and convince us that this is what they want and explain themselves. So it's not just, oh, I want a caesar, but these are, these are my arguments. I've, I've read about it. I know I'm familiar with the risks and benefits, and this is what I want. It's an informed decision. I would be happy to do it. That's really good to know. And look, I think paradoxically, you know, this is not a diatribe against vaginal birth. You know, not everyone who has a vaginal birth has trauma and not everybody who has a vaginal birth will have prolapse. Mm -hmm. Um, Do we know the prevalence of prolapse or is it because it's not really spoken about and maybe very underreported, are we still a bit unsure? So we have some idea, but we don't know the actual prevalence. So it's hard to say. The idea we can get is from a few things. One is we have numbers of the women who have prolapse surgery. So if we look at data on prolapse surgery, up to 20% will, get, will have surgery during their life for prolapse or incontinence. We need to remember that not everyone with prolapse or incontinence goes to see a doctor and not everyone that goes to see a doctor ends up with an operation. So obviously the numbers are higher than that. The other thing that we have are studies that were that did survey of population 
and that was about 6 to 8% reported symptoms that were suggestive of prolapse, but that was not confirmed with an examination. So the way to confirm that someone has prolapse is a normal standard gynecological check. You don't need any fancy imaging or anything like that to identify, to diagnose the problem. At times, we need some supportive tests with uh, particular symptoms. So women with bladder issues might need a cystoscopy or urodynamic studies, and women with bowel leakage might need manometry or ultrasound. But the stock standard diagnosis of prolapse will be just with an examination. So for listeners, um, just to explain some of those things, so cystoscopy is when we have a look in the bladder with a telescope and manometry is when we have a look at the pressure of the strengths of the sphincter of the anus. So these are tests that help us figure out. I would say, Sippy, they're probably more important from a surgical perspective, aren't they, to figure out what's the right operation for the right patient and is surgical management likely to benefit the patient in the way that they want to, to address the symptoms that they're having. And um, it helps us from a surgical perspective also in terms of patient selection to figure out which patient's going to benefit the most from surgery. Correct. Majority would be supportive surgical treatment. At times, women are complaining of urinary incontinence and just the, the history is not enough to concretely say, oh, this is stress urinary incontinence. This is urge urinary incontinence and we need some tests to further figure it out. Sippy, for our listeners, can you tell us what is the difference between stress incontinence and urge incontinence? All right, so stress incontinence is leakage when the pressure in the tummy, in the abdomen, is increased. So that would be coughing, running, sneezing, that would be the most common thing that will provoke stress urinary incontinence. Urge incontinence is the leakage when you need to go to the toilet. So if I need to go to the toilet and I'm leaking on my way to the toilet, that's urge incontinence. Quite often when women come with symptoms, what we'll ask them to do initially is something that is called a bladder diary. The bladder diary will chart the fluid intake and urination how often, and amount, volume. Because urge incontinence can go with urgency, which is we know those women that just constantly have to go to the toilet. They don't leave home without knowing where is the next stop, where they can stop for the toilet. And that, that's another common problem, also getting more uh, prevalent with age. And what is the cause of that, Sipi? What causes urge incontinence? So majority is unexplained. There are some, there, there are a few patients that will have a neurological problem that will cause this bladder to be overactive and contracting very often. There are other uh, diagnoses, which would be interstitial cystitis, which is an inflammation in the uh, internal wall of the bladder, which again irritates the bladder and presents itself with frequent urination, urgency, urge incontinence, and pain. And we talked about that stress incontinence is more common in women who've had pelvic floor damage from childbirth. Is that the same for urge incontinence or is it different? 
Urge incontinence is not related to childbirth. Some women with prolapse will have more symptoms of frequency and urgency, but that can also be uh, as part of with the prolapse, there can be a bit of a kink of the water pipe, not being able to empty well the bladder and going often because the bladder is not completely emptied every time we go. We've talked about the problem. Let's talk a bit about the surgical management of prolapse and the surgical management of incontinence. So, and that's really stress incontinence, isn't it? Because we can't really treat urge incontinence surgically. So we'll start with prolapse. Prolapse surgery is a field that changed probably 10 years ago. So it changed 20-something years ago and changed again 10 years ago. As we started saying initially that prolapse is similar to a hernia, many years ago we did what we call native tissue repair, which means strengthening the the native tissues with sutures and putting it back into position. About 20, 25 years ago, after seeing that the general surgeons are getting good results of repairing hernia with mesh and using slings to fix stress urinary incontinence, meshes were introduced to fix vaginal prolapse in a vaginal approach. The reason behind introducing those those meshes were that the risk of recurrence of prolapse surgery when we do native tissue repair is up to 30% lifelong. Introducing mesh was in the hope that that reduces the risk of recurrence. That was proven correct. It does reduce the risk of recurrence, but it carries some potential risks that initially we thought they were not that much, so not that common and not that bad. And over time, um, sadly, we were proven wrong. The risks that are associated with vaginal mesh, uh, mesh exposure, uh, which is exposure of the mesh into the vaginal uh, cavity, infection, and pain with intercourse. About eight to ten years ago, we kind of stopped using mesh for vaginal prolapse for that reason. And now we've gone back to doing native tissue repair. So using the own tissue uh, with stitches to push things back into uh, position. And so we, we accept now that there is still a recurrence risk with prolapse surgery, that if you do have prolapse, it, you are more likely for it to come back despite having surgery, um, but that we think that the ways that we had so far developed to try and make that better actually cause more trouble than they're worth with mesh erosion and vaginal ulceration and, and long-term bad consequences. Correct, correct. So at the moment, we're back to doing native tissue repair, accepting that uh, there is a risk of recurrence, but the risk of recurrence is better, uh, we can cope with that better than mesh uh, exposure, mesh erosion. So mesh erosion is the mesh eroding into the bladder or the bowel. That doesn't happen. That was less often or less frequent than the mesh exposure. Mesh mesh exposure was uh, a real problem. Sipi, what proportion of women who have a prolapse repair also need a hysterectomy at the same time, removal of the uterus? Okay. 
So that would be, again, a personal choice. The, the French, a very well-known French gynecologist said that, like I gave the equivalent of a trampoline, he said that the pelvic floor is like sea level and you have this um, ship that is sinking a bit, right? So there is nothing wrong with the ship. It doesn't mean that it has to come out. You can, just, you can either bring it back to position or you can take it out. Traditionally, we used to combine it with a hysterectomy, thinking, oh, it's done its, it's, done its job, let's get it out. But over the last 15, 20 years, uh, it's mainly a European approach saying there is, there's nothing wrong with the uterus. It can be either lifted or taken out, and it would be a personal choice. Obviously, if the uterus has large fibroids or if patient suffers of other problems that can contribute, you know, heavy periods, then a hysterectomy would be appropriate. But just for prolapse, it's a personal preference whether to get a hysterectomy or whether to get a procedure to hook the uterus up into position. What are the advantage of keeping, advantages of keeping your uterus if you're having uterine prolapse? personal preference some women want to keep the uterus we don't just in you know in other fields we don't just take things out we take things out if they're sick so someone has acute appendicitis we take the appendix out or has um, acute cholecystitis the gallbladder comes out this is a very particular field in which an organ that is essentially normal can be removed so I've seen quite a few women saying, if it's normal, just leave it. And there are other side effects, aren't there, if you have your uterus removed? So that's uh, controversial. We looked into studies as to whether a hysterectomy, so removal of the uterus, increases the risk of prolapse or doesn't. And that's uh, controversial. There is no agreement on whether it increases uh, the risk of a prolapse. The uterus is um, suspended with some connective tissue, with some uh, ligaments, and getting the uterus out, we have to cut through those ligaments. And this is the theory behind that increases the ri- increasing the risk of uh, prolapse in the future. So you've, you've mentioned um, surgery as a way of treating prolapse. What percentage of patients would you say that come to you with prolapse go to surgery is the solution? And, and what other solutions are there if someone doesn't want surgery? With management of prolapse, we go through conservative and surgical treatment. Quite often, women initially want to try something conservative. They think, oh, let's, let's give that a good go. If I don't have to have an operation, then I won't have one. Um, it's not like cancer or heart disease or something that you think, oh, if I don't get onto it right now, I'm going to be in big trouble. If, uh, if that stays the same as it is or gets a bit better, then I'll just keep going with conservative management. Conservative management can be pelvic floor exercises, can be using a pessary, which I, I can talk about totally. Over time, we tend to be tired of conservative management and eventually say, well, had enough. This is not going anywhere. Can we just get it fixed? So I think initially a larger proportion will go for conservative management 
And over time, they will say, well, no, just fix it. Oh, yes. So, so pessary, yes. pessaries are the mainstay of conservative treatment. Pessary basically is a silicone device that stays in the vagina and gives support. Generally, two types of pessaries. One are supportive pessaries, and the other ones are space-occupying pessaries. Support, supportive pessaries are wing or ring with a shelf, and they sit in the vagina in a horizontal fashion, basically supporting it. That improves prolapse symptoms, and women can learn how to take it out and put it back in so it doesn't have to stay there for the whole time. They, continue, they can continue being sexually active. The risks with uh, pessaries are infection due to the presence of a foreign body, increasing vaginal discharge, and also there can be erosion from the pessary putting pressure on the vaginal walls. So if it's too small, it falls out, and if it's too big, it can cause some problems. So there are quite a few options in terms of shapes and sizes. The other general group, um, space-occupying, and that in women that have pelvic floor muscles that are quite weak and cannot give support for the ring pessary, we have to use a space-occupying pessary, and that cannot be removed by the patient. That will be removed in, in the rooms. The pessaries require some maintenance in the sense that women need regular gynecological checks to see that there are no infections and no complications. Pessary needs to be removed, washed, cleaned, and reinserted. So there is a, um, it's kind of a long-term commitment. And at times we see complications that preclude continuing with that. And then we have to either not do anything or more commonly uh, opt for surgical treatment. And Sipi, if somebody does decide that they've gone from using a pessary and it's no longer working for them, they've either had an issue with the pessary like erosion or infection or they've just had enough of it, they don't want it anymore and they, they have a surgery, what kind of downtime do women experience around a pelvic floor reconstructive surgery? The operation itself takes an hour to a couple of hours there will be two, three days of an in-hospital stay. Once we finish the operation, we uh, put a big tampon in the vagina and we put a tube in the bladder. The next day, we take everything out and make sure that the woman can drink, eat, go to the toilet, uh, open bowels, and there are no issues. So going home would be usually around day three after surgery. And since we use the native tissues and sutures, we need to give it maximum time for good healing. And so we want everyone to kind of relax for six weeks, uh, which means no heavy lifting, no strenuous exercises, because the risk is that if these sutures uh, fall apart, everything just drops back. So you really have to make that commitment that you're going to really, for would you say about a month, really live a different a different six weeks, a Four very to six different weeks, lifestyle. Yeah. Four to six weeks. And that, that will really determine the effectiveness of the surgery. And as you were saying, the first operation is our greatest chance to improve things long term. 
Another group of patients, Sippy, that I see are women, unfortunately, who have had severe birth trauma and have had a prolapse, but they haven't completed their family. Yeah. You know, and I would see those women, a propor- I don't see that many of them, but I would see a proportion of them when they've struggled to get pregnant and need my help. So in terms, and for sometimes it's because of sexual difficulties because the the prolapse causes a great deal of discomfort and they're not able to have comfortable sex and might need a bit of fertility help to help them get pregnant faster for that reason. In terms of those women, they do tend to use conservative management more as to bide their time until they've completed their family. What's your viewpoint on prolapse corrective surgery before a woman's completed her family? And if someone does have prolapse surgery and then gets pregnant again, can you tell us about what advice she might receive from a doctor? Going back to the traditional way, traditionally, uh, we used to say, well, we fix your prolapse after you complete your family. That would be standard standard statement, which is true and not true. So the, the logic behind fixing prolapse after completing the family is that there is a risk of recurrence. And we know that pregnancy and birth is not good in general for the pelvic floor. And we are worried that that will increase the risk of recurrence of the prolapse that got fixed. And uh, the risk of failure of recurrent prolapse is even higher. So the best shot at fixing prolapse is the first shot. So this is why the advice is try and wait until you complete your family. Meanwhile, we'll help with pelvic floor exercises and castories. And after family is completed, to try and correct the prolapse. At times, women have severe symptoms. So if the prolapse is really bad, then I can't tell someone, just wait. This is, this is not that acceptable. If the, if the prolapse is really bad and we can't get on top of it with conservative treatment, then probably surgical treatment would be the right way to go. And then uh, the probably common thing would be either a vaginal repair of the anterior and posterior vaginal wall, so the back and the front, or lifting the uterus abdominally to a strong ligament that sits against the spine. Next baby or babies will be born via cesarean section, and that would be my recommendation, regardless if someone had, you know, three normal births. Because again, another vaginal birth increases the risk of recurrence of prolapse, and we know that it's difficult to manage recurrence. Yeah, so basically, in summary, if you've had prolapse repair surgery and you have another pregnancy, most doctors would recommend that you should have a cesarean. Correct. Regardless of your obstetric history. Regardless, regardless. Especially so, someone that had prolapse repair most likely had some sort of vaginal birth, so it's unlikely to be out of nowhere. And that was traumatic enough to damage the pelvic floor requiring surgery because it was the, the, we couldn't manage it conservatively. We need to minimise the risks of recurrence. So, Sipi, what is your message for women who are suffering in silence with prolapse? Even if they don't know it's prolapse. 
my probably the take home message is get checked. Get checked, know where you're you're at and make an informed decision. It doesn't mean that you need to do anything. It's like, just know what's going on. It it gives the confidence of, okay, um, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm going to do. And this is when I'm going to revisit my decision. Women that uh, have prolapse, even if it's not severe prolapse, which should not be in the way with sexual intercourse, will be embarrassed, will be will have discomfort, it will preoccupy them and will have an impact on their sexual function. Prolapse uh, surgery does not change sexual function. So women that had normal sexual function prior to surgery should have normal sexual function after. And women that had pre-existing issues before the prolapse, obviously repairing the prolapse will not fix that. I think that's really important and I think it's kind of opening a whole other topic because prolapse can happen because of birth trauma and the change in our body after having babies and a whole lot of sexual issues can arise because of those very same things because of birth trauma, healing trauma, sexual pain relating to vaginal tears or episiotomy, especially severe tears like third degree tears where the anal sphincter is involved and all of these things can really affect continence and they can affect sexuality and they can affect the way we view our bodies and they can really as women make us to some degree lose trust in our bodies which used to just do what they were meant to do and have all of a sudden really failed us monumentally Um, by not bouncing back and not performing as we ideally wanted them to during birth and beyond. So these issues are so complicated and I think, you know, it it definitely is something that we don't spend enough time exploring with patients and we really maybe need to build a team, which is something we do well at Women's Health Melbourne involving, you know, really knowledgeable allied health professionals who can really help in terms of physiotherapy and sexual psychology. Thank you so much, Zippy. That was fascinating. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Can't wait to have you back. We'll talk about incontinence in our next episode with you. That would be great.